It is your Friday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Happy to be back for another day. Good one coming up. Matthew Collar from Purple Insider will join me here in just a little while. He has completed a book about pro football focus. Really interesting. I've read a lot of it already. It's not out yet. It's called Football is a Numbers Game, but it is available for pre-order and will be out soon. Really enjoyed my conversation with him, just kind of talking about the evolution of, of PFF, how much we use it today, how much teams use it today, and kind of how that started small and grew and grew and grew along with the analytics movement in the NFL. So listen for that here in just a few minutes. Got a Twins thought at the end of the show. First, though, what did I miss? I want to kind of combine um, an NBA and WNBA thought, two disparate things to a certain degree because they involve two different teams, two different circumstances, the Lynx and the Nuggets. But just kind of had this thought while thinking about um, the Nuggets uh, win over the Lakers on Thursday night, take a, take a 2 nothing series lead in the uh, in the Western Conference Finals, but also in the context of the Lynx, they begin they gave, they begin the regular season today against Chicago. Missed the playoffs last year for the first time since 2010, and I think we overcomplicated things a little bit when examining what went wrong for the Lynx last season. Yes, there were a lot of you know a lot of factors in play. Um, you know, maybe the roster didn't quite come together the way they wanted to. Maybe it was just not not their year. They'd been kind of holding things together after kind of the, the retirement of a lot of the dynasty players. And the last one of those, of course, Sylvia Fowles finished up last season and now is all done. But, you know, obviously moving on from Maya Moore, Lindsey Whalen, Simone Augustus, the players, along with Fowles, who really keyed those four championships between 2011 and 2017. So, we think about them last year, and we're like, "Wow, they missed the playoffs. They only won 14 games. Um, you know, they wound up in the lottery this year. Got the number two overall pick, Diamond Miller. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the discussions. Well, what was wrong with the Lynx? Well, sometimes it is easy to forget that Nafisa Collier, their best player, an Olympian, um, you know, a, a former Rookie of the Year, an excellent player all around on the floor. She only played four games for the Lynx last season. She missed most of the season while pregnant, gave birth, came back in the end of the season after just six weeks uh, after giving birth, pushed herself to get back and, you know, played four games at the end of the year, clearly was not ready quite to be herself. You can see it in the statistics. She only averaged about seven points and three rebounds in kind of limited action, but she wanted to play with Sylvia Fowles in that end of the season. But you know, you could kind of see that was not the Nafisa Collier we're accustomed to. She is back now. Kent Youngblood, a terrific story about her in Friday's Star Tribune, all about her becoming a mother. Her daughter almost won now, Mila. And, uh, you know, just kind of the evolution of her process, missing most of last season, what that has meant to her, and how determined she is to kind of get back into being the kind of player she was before last season and you know acknowledging that it'll be difficult but also acknowledging that she is ready for the challenge to get back in there and lead this team again now like I said just kind of struck me that when you think about a team and why they don't perform well a lot of it sometimes comes down to the simplest things it's their they don't have their best players sometimes they don't have their best players the Lynx did not have Nafisa Collier for all but four games last season and you know they tried to be competitive but when you are missing your best player or one of your best players it is harder to compete it just is and sometimes we forget about that now with the Nuggets um 
the thing that I think we need to over that we that we've tended to overlook or that we need to simplify simplify is they were the number one team in the West pretty much all season long. And I think when they got into the playoffs, I think some of us made an assumption, I am one of those included, that they were not necessarily a great team, that they were a team that maybe was built for the regular season, but not so much the playoffs. Now, I thought they would beat the Wolves once the Wolves got into the playoffs, but I didn't think they were going to beat the Suns. Well, they did that. They dispatched them in six games fairly easily, and watching those games, you could tell that Denver was the better of those two teams. And now they have a 2-0 series lead on the Lakers because Nikola Jokic is excellent because Jamal Murray got red hot in Thursday's game because they have the right complementary pieces to slow down LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They are just a better team, at least they've shown to be a better team, in the right moments against the Lakers so far. The narrative going into the series was, hey, the Lakers are on fire right now. They've got LeBron James. They've got Anthony Davis. They, you know, maybe they are, if not the favorite, you know, on on even footing with the team that was the number one seed all season long, even though the Lakers were the number seven seed. That has not proven to be the case so far. Now, the series goes back to L.A. L.A. is undefeated at home so far in this in this postseason. So we'll see how long that narrative lasts. But just kind of giving Denver the respect that they probably deserve. And Michael Malone, their head coach, has been very vocal about this. The, the disrespect that he felt coming out of Game 1 when a lot of the narrative was, you know, the Lakers are going to make some adjustments and be fine in Game 2. Well, some of those adjustments kind of worked in Game 2, but, you know, by focusing so much of their energy on Jokic, it left Murray open. Murray killed them in the fourth quarter. And, you know, Denver's a pretty good defensive team when they need to be. And that showed again on Thursday night. So the disrespect and really just honoring what a team does during the regular season, honoring how good a team looks and not saying, well, you know, when it comes to the playoffs, that's not going to be who they are. Sometimes it is who they are. Sometimes that it's just simple to say, hey, the best team is probably going to be the team that wins. That's the case with Denver right now. And so, you know, just as we think about sports, sometimes we try to overcomplicate them. We try to look for some sort of hidden kind of hidden, like some kind of hidden reason why something happened or trying to try to try to think too much about why why something might be going on. Hey, the Lynx last year, they weren't very good because one of their best players only played four games. And hey, the Nuggets, maybe they are the best team in the NBA because they proved it over 82 games in the regular season. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. All right, I'm really happy to be joined today by Matthew Collar, local NFL writer, local NFL podcaster, covers the Vikings in both of those forms at Purple Insider, purpleinsider.com. And uh, Matthew has written a book. It's not out yet, but it's available for pre-order. And I find the subject to be fascinating. I hope you do too. It is all about pro football focus and that cites, you know, origin story and also its growth and rise to prominence in, in the, in, into the space now, Matthew, where they are largely synonymous with football and analytics and work with all 32 teams in the NFL, a number of, of college teams and just kind of a wild ride it was and still is for them right now. 
Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that this company really only became a real company about a decade and a half ago. And like you mentioned, they behind the scenes work with every NFL team, um, something like 130 colleges, uh, XFL, CFL, USFL, uh, that they're working in some capacity with all of those leagues. And then there's the other part of it where they have been wildly influential in the way that the league is covered, the way the league is talked about. I mean, just even think about offensive line. If you want to find out if an offensive lineman has been good or bad, uh, we had no way of doing that. Not only just when you and I were growing up, but when you and I were in college, we had no way of doing that. The best way you could figure out in 2002, if an offensive lineman was good, was you pulled up Madden and you saw what his ratings were on Madden, or you checked if he made the Pro Bowl, and those are not particularly great metrics. And uh, so I think that people know what the influence of PFF has been, how much more we understand the game, how much more data we have you know, connected to it. Just think about when we're talking about Jordan Addison, the Vikings' first-round pick, we're going to want to know how often he's playing in the slot snap your fingers and we're going to know how often he's lining up at every single position. And that stuff has really only come from them within the last number of years, but it's not just that it's also kind of the influence of a league that was finally finding itself as far as analytics go. I mean, everybody knows about Moneyball and the Michael Lewis book and how the Oakland A's kind of accelerated the league and, and baseball's obsession with analytics and also solved a lot of things that were maybe inefficient in the past, but also sparked this kind of way of thinking of using data to search for answers. It was not that long ago that the NFL was still punting on fourth and three at the 38 yard line. And you can see within the numbers, a lot of evidence of just how much the league has began to adopt uh, analytics. And it was really, I think only about in 2017 when the Philadelphia Eagles started going for it on fourth down and using a more analytical approach that the rest of the league said, we better catch up and we, we better get, get on this. And, Pro football focus was just starting to hit its stride at that moment. And so the the two things kind of intersect of a league that was ready to take a step forward and adopt analytics and also this company that was the biggest and most prominent and had data that nobody else had uh, in both a public face and then behind the scenes working with teams as well. So that's why I decided to write the book because I've always been interested in those connections and I read Football Outsiders for yep. many, many years and they've had a, a great influence on the football analytics revolution. So I've known about a lot of these concepts for a long time, but it's only recently that everything the NFL is doing is matching up with things that the analytics people had found um, from you know years ago, actually with a lot of these concepts and the NFL caught up. So I thought it was an interesting time to write about it. And then I found uh, a very, very fascinating story behind how pro football focus got where it is. Yeah, and I want to get to that and a bunch of other stuff before we go too far. Remind everybody, A, what the book is called, and B, how uh, how, they, how they can pre-order it, because it's not out for a few months, right? Yeah, that's right. It's coming out. You can get it in your hands in October, and it's called Football is a Numbers Game, and it's the story behind PFF. And so if you just search on Amazon, you know, like 
football is a numbers game you'll you'll find it but yeah that's that's the best place to find it so i just i've just finished up the entire process of reporting editing everything else so now the thing's got to get produced and sent out to stores and all that sort of process but yeah it's uh it's exciting it's it's almost ready to go and like you said that the origin story of the site is you know one of the more interesting things about it i think like a lot of us interact with it on a near daily basis like I do. And it's funny you mentioned Jordan Addison because that was one of the most recent times that I used it. I wanted to know kind of what what his what he was doing, what he did what he did in college. Like where where were his snaps coming from in college? How much did he catch you know, where were where were his yards coming from after the catch, before the catch? It was all very easy to sort, even they they've gone deeper on the college game, I think a, a lot more in the last few years, kind of understanding how intertwined college draft than pro is for a lot of people especially with how how big the draft has become but you know this site started like you said very interestingly by someone from england who had no background in football at all yeah that's right uh neil hornsby who was gracious enough to let me essentially follow him around for a year and a half um he was a project manager working for hotels in England and became obsessed with the NFL. And so he started gathering all of these old books uh, that had all the box scores and everything else. And he began kind of chronicling all those things, putting them into a computer, but eventually found out that he was reinventing pro football reference. And so (laughs) after that, because he was really just obsessed with football and obviously over in England, he would have been pretty strange to be this into uh, American football, but he would kind of do anything he could to get any information about the league. So he would, you know, read like crazy, anything that he could get his hands on. And he wanted to find a better way to know if some of the stuff that he was reading was actually correct. And it actually started with offensive linemen where he would read things like this guard is the best pulling guard in the NFL today. And he would think to himself, well, how could you know that? How, how, what you evaluated all the pulling guards in the NFL. So he had this idea to start writing down what everyone was doing and starting to track it. And then because this was around the message board time, he was interacting with other British football fans on these message boards. And so he kind of built this little crew of people who would watch back the games and start to evaluate what they were doing. And I remember the early criticisms of PFF was like, who are these random people grading the games? And that was right. I mean, it was random <laughs> people creating the games and uh, it's become very much a science. Now we could talk about that uh, later, but it was really interesting that he slowly but surely built it up into where he had data for every game of an NFL season. And it took a while. It was first like six weeks and then whatever. And then they start putting it on the Internet. And the New York Giants find it. And one of the key things that they did was you talk about where Jordan Addison lined up was they did player participation, just meaning who was on the field they would keep track of, which was actually a huge deal to the NFL because they wouldn't the league at that time would not give the data to the teams about who was playing. So if you wanted to look at a linebacker who played 50 percent of the snaps, your quality control coach had to go through every single snap and find that guy as opposed to what these guys 
this handful of people that that he put together were developing. So once the Giants found it, they started using their data, even to the point when they reached the Super Bowl, they had a guy that has was kind of their liaison with PFF. They gave him a ticket to the Super Bowl uh, because it, they felt it was so valuable that they had had that data and they had uh, so much time that they had saved through it. So then once the Giants got a hold of it, they started going to other teams and, and it started to build momentum from there. So it wasn't initially the grading that caught team's eye. It was actually just the player participation. And then since then they have grown a wild amount of data because they just kept layering it to well, well you know, cause teams would ask them, well, what about coverages? What about, you know, blocking schemes, all these different things. And, and then eventually it became all this situational data. So if you want to know what scheme the New York Giants played on third and eight or longer, or could we say fourth and eight maybe and longer? <laughs> for instance, um, for instance. If, if for instance, just pick a random. Uh, but if you wanted to know, you can find that out in an instant with the data. And I've included some screenshots in the book of like what coaches are looking at if they want to call up these different things. So it's grown from just them writing down who was on the field and trying to grade them by themselves to developing this, this massive system of being able to track everything that's going on in the field and to grade. And the grading is no longer some guesswork. It's now the NFL has influenced it a ton. Uh, it's used by NFL teams as a cross-checking method. Quasi Adolfo Mensa told me that, that they'll look at how their people grade versus PFF. And if there's a big difference, they're going to start to ask, okay, what's going on there to try to contextualize the difference. So when you hear people say, oh, they don't use the grades. No, the NFL uh, absolutely. Not, and I can't speak for every single team, but sure. they are aware of the grades and have found some uses for them. So it's a it's fascinating how he just had this as a project that he was doing by himself for fun to interact with the league and sort of understand it better as a British football fan. And then it grew slowly and slowly kind of sparked by the New York Giants. I think that was in 2008, maybe 2007. The first time they won the when they beat the Patriots for the first time in the Super Bowl was that around that time? Yeah, uh, it was the yeah it was before well it was before the second time that it was an actual company. Okay. So the first the first time was around that 2010 where they actually reached out and started using their data. But uh, another big step for them was the Wall Street Journal writing about how PFF was being used by the Giants and everyone started to kind of take notice. And then other teams wanted to know, wait a minute, what is this advantage that the Giants are getting? And then it started the ball rolling from there. Well, like you wrote in your book, too, the introduction has a whole section on you know, the Eagles in 2017, kind of a painful memory to the Vikings because they, I'm sure they used <clears throat> PFF to their advantage in the NFC title game and certainly in the Super Bowl that the Vikings and their fans had hoped would feature the home team Vikings instead of the Eagles. But they used that to great effect on a couple specific plays, the, you know, especially the, the pass to at the Zach Ertz that you referenced and kind of isolating formations, understanding kind of where, you know, where guys are going to be on the field for the Patriots and using a lot of that PFF data for that um but this is, this is a gradual process obviously because this doesn't happen especially in a sport like football where you know we, we think of baseball as the national pastime but football is probably the slowest sport in a lot of cases to adapt right like there's a lot of traditionalism there's run the football there's, there's kind of been these axioms that become become kind of thought of as fact 
And also, you know, kind of like you mentioned, you know, the baseball statistical revolution came earlier. I think the NBA and basketball probably got there a lot faster than football. It's also tricky sometimes, though, in football, where you have 11 moving parts a lot of times to isolate what's what's going on actually in a player, how, how you kind of isolate how someone is is performing. So I imagine like the buy-in factor and getting people to actually take a look at this along the way was, you know, it was not a uh, it was not an everybody jump in with both feet at the same time kind of moment. Oh, yeah, there's no question. And I mean, if you look at the Giants, for example, even though they were the earliest adopter of this data, uh, their uh, analytics guy who was working for Tom Coughlin at that time and had worked for Bill Parcells had been with them for many, many years. He told me that what he would do when he got the data in is he would delete all the grades because his coaching staff did not like the idea of people, other people grading their players, but they wanted to know all the other stuff. So he would just kind of go down the Excel sheet, hit delete. And, and so now, of course, they understand it and they not every team, but I think a lot of teams have figured out different ways to use it. And there is layers to this. There's sort of an early adoption of we can use this data inside the building to game plan. And teams bought into that, I think, fairly quickly because they saw the very practical use of it. Now, the NFL also realized that PFF was doing this and making money off it. So then they made the player participation data available to the public kind of in a response to PFF existing. And at that time, they thought, okay, well, our company Company's probably over now. And that was the best we could do. But then they started bringing out all this other data and coaches really understood the value of having that, having the plays based on their tracking, they draw up a, a map of every play. So it looks just like it would look on a whiteboard. So you can look at any play that the Vikings ran through the PFF system and see it drawn out as an actual play based on what the tracking data says. So they built that tool early on and teams really liked it. So they saw the value in using that data. What they were not buying into as much until 2017 was some of those uh, concepts like punting, like running the ball. And you'll notice that even running in the last couple of years, teams have gotten very smart about it when they run, what defenses they run against, how they choose what downs they run, not running on second and 10. Now that Mike Zimmer's not in the league, uh, <laughs> not running constantly in second and 10, right? So those, those concepts were a little later. And one of the things that PFF did in that realm was after they grew and Chris Collinsworth bought the company in 2014 and they started to grow and grow do the college side, had that credibility from him. They were on Sunday Night Football, but they hired data scientists. And those data scientists, what they did, it's not, I mean, that sounds super nerdy, but all they did was take the data and just studied it in a mathematical way. So if you want to know, just for example, um, something about like, if a play is perfectly blocked, if every lineman blocks correctly and grades well, how different is that from when a lineman makes a mistake? And this can tell us a lot. I mean, th there's a hundred examples of that. How do certain coverages react against certain other things? Like data scientists can pull that stuff in and actually look closely at it. And that started to influence the league as well. And then that's right around that time where the NFL started to get more interested in, you know, the tracking data, which is another big step for these teams because that all needs to be studied and analyzed as well. So there's kind of this early buy-in 
and it's still only the internet nerds like me who are reading what PFF's conclusions are, but behind the scenes, they're using this data. And then once the Eagles win the Super Bowl, everyone started to want to find out, okay, how do we get those edges? How, who can we hire to be in our analytics department? And those analytics departments are still being built out today. Like they're not anywhere near what the NFL is. I mean, the Vikings have a handful of people. The New York Yankees probably have 40 people who are working on their data. So there still is a big difference there, but there's kind of two different sections of what PFF is and its influence on the NFL. I'm glad you mentioned the Vikings because I think that was, it was almost like a running joke for a while, how much Mike Zimmer would you know he he'd bring up PFF grades and people he people would ask him about that and it would you know he would kind of grouse about it but at the same time I think general manager Rick Spielman was trying to embrace some of those concepts some of those analytical concepts at least and they were using those tools and so it kind of had this kind of push pull of what Zimmer was saying publicly versus what the team was doing internally and now we have this entirely new um, regime in you know uh, Quasi Dofomenso who comes a lot more from the data side Kevin O'Connell a younger offensive minded coach who seems more likely to at least be interested in what the what the data is telling him how do, how do you how do you kind of encapsulate the the Vikings relationship with with PFF over the years Oh yeah it's so interesting because at first they absolutely hated that someone was grading their players yes. I mean just were disgusted by the, even the thought of that happening. And Mike Zimmer, I think it was in 2000, maybe 15, where right. he was asked about, yeah, I think where he was asked about Matt Khalil. But this was actually a, a fairly big moment for PFF because Mike Zimmer going on this epic rant about PFF started a lot of discussion and attention, and it gave an opportunity for their people to explain, here's what our data actually does. Here's what our grades actually do. And after that happened, uh, PFF called up the Vikings and said, hey, can we meet at the combine? Can we get together and let's talk about this? We'd love to show you all the things we can do. And it was not long after that, that the Vikings became a client of PFF. And that's that is how a lot of it happened, right? Where teams would have skepticism and they would meet with PFF. They would see all the uses of their data and how far it went beyond just the grades. And they would say, okay, actually, we need to have a contract with you to be able to use this data. And then when they invented this system called PFF Ultimate that tied together all the video with the data, then every team was buying in because now you can click in their system on any play and not just fourth and eight get the coverages, but you can also watch every single one of the plays. And once that happened, that that saved the coaches so much time and made it like a must have for every, every NFL team. So the Vikings, of course, are one of those teams that has that uh, but there's also like Rick Spielman, I think, really did want to be ahead of the curve. And I think the Wilfs have always wanted to have uh, an organization that's ahead of the curve. So by the end of Rick Spielman's tenure there, he was doing and he he's in the book talking about his process in the draft, doing a ton of analytical stuff when it came to the draft, trying to I mean, the way he put it was that they were trying to take what successful players had been before and find players with the same profiles. It's not always easy to do that, but that's using the things we now talk about all the time, like relative athletic scores. It's the same sort of process that they were using, finding similar athletes, height, weight, production to Daniil Hunter, which yes. I think maybe they 
overestimated how, how you could recreate Daniel yes. Hunter a few times. But the point was just that they went from being a team that was saying, you can't grade our players and so forth to using all this data to their advantage. Now, I think with Mike Zimmer, he he was using that from a coaching perspective. He was using the reports that they were giving because they the coaches get reports after the game of all the, those things, the situational stuff and everything else. And Gary Kubiak said he loved it. So he, like they were getting all that data and they were using it. But there were these other concepts that the data scientists had discovered that the league was buying into going forward on fourth down the way they're running the football, all these things that I think Mike Zimmer, I mean, even something as simple as when to go for two, I think Zimmer was buying into these things to some extent when he agreed with them. But when (laughs) he didn't, I I think he was very quick to say, and there was kind of a big moment there where in the the 2020 NFL combine, he at the podium kind of called out the analytics department. And I don't think that sat well with very many people um, because I think that the ownership wanted people like Kwesi Adafalmensa and Kevin O'Connell that were going to be modern in their approach. And I think it kind of just went past Zimmer. That doesn't mean that everything he did was wrong. Zimmer was dead right about play action and how effective it is. He was often right about when to go for it on fourth down. Surprisingly, he was not as much of a dinosaur as people thought, but there's this kind of missing link between being fully all in on it and still trying to push back with him. But it is interesting that in PFF's growth and success, that here's kind of the Vikings at the middle of that. And then Kwesi Adafo Mensa comes along. And in the in the, our interview for the book, he told me one of the reasons he is where he is, is using PFF data for college and for the draft to stand out in San Francisco in their front office. So it's kind of had all these tentacles that touch the Minnesota Vikings in different ways. Couple more things on the book, then I want to get one Vikings question for you as well. One thing I'm always struck by is kind of we are in this um, kind of analytics evolution and revolution in a lot of sports. Is you know I think in some ways it's it's definitely changed how baseball is played. You see you know a lot more home runs, a lot more strikeouts. You know the, the shift, and they've tried to kind of counterbalance for that with some new rules and things like that. But it's definitely changed the game, and some would argue maybe for for the worse, or at least it makes it aesthetically difficult to watch sometimes just because there's less action NBA, you know, so many three pointers because we know those are efficient shots, things like that. How do you think the analytics revolution has impacted what we see on the field in football? Now that's a really interesting question because Michael Lopez, who does analytics for the NFL, he said that one of the things that's interesting about how it stands out is that the analytical concepts often ask teams to be more fun. And that is not necessarily what happens. I mean, three pointers are fun, but when a team clanks 14 in a row, it's not fun. And sometimes you feel like they have gotten very lazy to like, Oh, not in the playoffs, but in the regular season, like we're not running an offense. We're just going to shoot our three. Um, And with baseball, you're right. I think it's gotten a little better with the pitch clock and, you know, the shift being eliminated, but still it can be strikeout or Homer strikeout or Homer strikeout or Homer and home runs are exciting. And so are strikeouts, but not when it's every play where with football, pushing the ball down the field, throwing more often going forward on fourth down to some extent going for two, like some of these, 
concepts that we can really see on the field, not the ones that are deep in the weeds, like how you're blocking on you right. know, certain run schemes or whatever, which you know data scientists are studying, but ones that we sitting at home on our couch can just watch an NFL game and have you know Tony Romo say, I don't know about the analytics on this one, Jim, but the <laughs> yeah. way that it has broadly impacted how football is played does create a lot more entertainment, I, I think. I mean, a lot more. And this is, you see this response of defenses playing deep safeties all of a sudden because the NFL was finding that explosive plays correlated with how much you score, how much success you had. So they started to run a lot more deep stuff. And then the uh, teams changed the defense and now they're running more underneath stuff that we see yards after catch over the last couple of years starting to increase. So there's always that cat and mouse game that's being played, but the broad thing is it's being, um, you know, influenced greatly by passing, being more efficient and uh, you know, less punting and more aggressive play and things like that. Less field goals from the 17 yard line. I mean, that's one, even when I watched the Minneapolis miracle game back, and the Vikings have a chance to score a touchdown, and I think they go up 17 nothing, or maybe it's to start the game, but they end up 17 nothing at half in part because they kicked like a 19-yard field goal, yeah. which was just, right, you just kind of laugh at that now. Like, what were you doing that early in the game, kicking that field goal? So when you even go back five, seven, eight years, you're going to notice some things that are different from how it's been influenced by the numbers much for the better. I really, I, I honestly can't think of like a negative way that the analytics, unless you just love, I don't know, the 2000 Ravens and you want <laughs> way more defense and less scoring, which, Hey, Mike Zimmer probably did. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's been definitely a part of it is more scoring and more entertainment. So what's next for PFF? Let's finish there as we kind of think about this, this book and kind of what what their next chapter might be. I mean, Hornsby has kind of he's he's moved on essentially with without much which fanfare. It sounds like it was kind of a, a quick uh, you know not that people didn't celebrate him, but he he didn't want to be the the middle of that story. But what what is PFF's evolving story now? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, I picked a strange time in their uh, growth because they got a huge investment from this uh, hedge fund called Silver Lake. And the company is worth, by the way, $150 million now. It went from being bought by Chris Collinsworth for a handful of dollars versus that. And now it is 10 times uh, more worth than it was before. But that also comes along with expectations of revenue. So they've gone from a project to something Chris Collinsworth bought to this you know, behemoth of a company, but now they have to produce more and more revenue. And there's only so much more you can produce on the team side. So they wanted to produce more on the content side, but that's also a very flooded market. Look what we're doing content right now. There's yes. a million different places people can get their football content. So there was a kind of a battle for what direction they wanted to go after the investment that ultimately led to its founder being pushed out of the company, which was totally unexpected when I started writing about them. But it was very interesting to chronicle. And I think it goes beyond just a book about a football data company. It's really about business in, in general, that a lot of businesses you have seen go through and media companies the same way go through this same thing is that the growth from being a startup to a uh, medium-sized company can be really, really challenging. And that's kind of where they are now. And the other part is that other people are coming. Like there's other 
companies that exist and that will exist that are, and, and one of them, one of their key players, Eric Eager, one of their data scientists left for one of those companies called Sumer Sports, uh, which is uh, founded by Paul Tudor Jones. He's a billionaire and he's a huge football fan. And he hired Thomas Dimitrov, the former GM of the Falcons, to build this company that could maybe not push out PFF entirely, but challenge for that space within NFL front offices as being a go-to uh, data source for them. So there is competition coming for PFF, and you're already starting to see the challenges that go along with that with some of their key people um, that were that really built the company leaving. And so now they have to kind of find a way to stay ahead of that game while also making profits as well. So there, there is definitely challenges in this space. It's not that I think they'll be king forever and and i kind of wrote like who knows where this is going to go you know this is a snapshot in time right but as far as you know data and everything else i doubt that when billy bean first started talking about walks being important or playing scott hatterberg at first base that he had any idea what baseball analytics would become and i think that we're kind of on that same path with football it's funny because i just read moneyball for the first time within the last year it was like i've read a uh, like 10 Michael Lewis books. I never read that one, which is just kind of silly considering how much I love baseball and love talking about this. And I will certainly read, um, read football's numbers game uh, more quickly than I read, uh, than I read Moneyball. And you guys all should to pre-order it, go find it on Amazon. Football is numbers game. Matthew Collar is my guest. Matthew, one final question for you. Just a, just a snapshot in time again. Um, it was Darius Smith. I don't know what PFF thought of him last year. He had a really good first half of the year, not so good second half of the year. Knee injuries certainly played a role. Finally, this trade is consummated with the Browns. I think it became official even on Tuesday morning, right before we recorded, but it had been uh, been reported a number of days before that. Uh, sixth rounder and a seventh rounder going out, of two fifth rounders coming back. Um, it's kind of a strange deal, a strange tenure, a good player for part of the year. What did you make of the of his tenure in this trade? Yeah, I mean, I thought that last year uh, it was kind of um, a, a swing at the fences signing where we didn't know uh, what he was going to look like coming off back surgery. And as far as your bang for buck, uh, it was incredible. I mean, it was one of the best signings of last year's offseason. I mean, yes, you're right that he did fade in the second half of the season as he was battling a knee injury, and that's relevant. But his overall production Double-digit sacks, top 10 in QB pressures for a you know, very, very reasonable contract for one year. And I think that the Vikings believed that he was going to be here for two years. But after you have production like that, you want a little more cash in your pocket. And the Vikings had no cash in their pocket to give. And the way I look at it is kind of like a yard sale. If you're moving and you're having a yard sale, you cannot haggle over prices. And that's the way it was with this. They could not give Zedarius Smith a new contract with more money and probably didn't want to do that anyway to add void years or give him an extension or all the ways that they could work around the salary cap. So if you don't want to do that, your only other option is just to move the guy and try to get something for him. And not only that, but they, they were in a dire situation with the salary cap. I mean, they couldn't even sign their rookies. They had no. $1 million, according to yes. over the cap to work with. I mean, you know, pull, pull together a couple star tribune writers and you've got the Viking salary cap. I mean, that's <laughs> a how couple, bad quite a few, Matthew, quite a few. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Well, it depends on, depends on the writer. I mean, uh, okay. I, I won't go forward with that joke, but, um, 
you, you know what I mean? That they, they had so little space, they needed to find a way to create it. And there's not many options remaining. The Delvin Cook thing is still on the table at some point. I'm sure that they'll release him or try to find a suitor. And that's about it. They could restructure Brian O'Neill and hurt themselves down the road. So they kind of had to do it. And look, they won 13 games. He was a huge player in that and deserves appreciation for it. But you kind of had a one-year answer to a situation that needed more than just one-year answers. So should they have drafted someone and played them there instead? Or should they have signed a younger player who might have upside or whatever? Um, But as far as that being a great season and him playing great, uh, yeah, it's like thanks for the memories. But it it wasn't a long-term thing, which I think we've seen them really shift from last year all in to try to win. Now you look at the defense. What is there? Seven or eight new starters. Almost everyone's young. I just wrote about today how Harrison Smith is the uh, the Will Smith meme at the end of Fresh Prince. Like just looking around. So, <laughs> you know, I I I, li- I like where they're at. I like what they're doing. I, I think this is smart. Eventually, you needed to just refresh this entire thing and see who can play, as opposed to trying to make these last minute signings all the time that are just not going to get you any farther. So, I think he's just kind of a, a part of all that. Hopefully it will not devolve into the Will Smith meme of somebody slapping somebody else. You never know what's going to happen on the sidelines when uh, Kirk's around. (laughs) That's true. It's true, especially when there's a long field goal against the Lions on the line. Well, uh, Matthew Collar, appreciate you uh, you coming on talking about uh, football's numbers game. That was it's, it's a really fascinating story. I've read a lot of it so far. I look forward to finishing it and uh, appreciate it. Go follow Matthew if you don't already. Of course, uh, Purple Insider at the podcast, Purple Insider the website, and uh, we will talk to you soon, Matthew. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matthew Collar. You know, one postscript to that, I thought it was interesting when we were talking about kind of how analytics have influenced what we see on the field in the in the NFL and maybe how that contrasts with the NBA and Major League Baseball. I think Matthew's right in that um, the style of play that you get from increased analytics does not decrease or or does not diminish the kind of interesting nature of the game. In fact, sometimes it only enhances it if there's more passes, if you're going for it more, things like that. I do think that that's an interesting point to make because I do think baseball in particular has suffered at times from an increased use of analytics in style of play. Not so much, you know, strategy, things like that. I think those are interesting, but style of play, I don't think the game is as interesting or has been as interesting as maybe it was in the past. The NBA, kind of the same thing with with teams shooting so many three-pointers sometimes right now, like we talked about. It's not as interesting of a game to watch, but I don't think the NFL suffers from that same problem, and that is another reason that sport remains on top Bonafide number one, no doubt about it, sport in the United States. Let us finish with the cooler. Interesting, the Twins starting to run and steal more bases. Phil Miller with a story about that in Friday's paper and on StarTribune.com. Um, the stat that I did not know about that I thought was interesting since the start of the 2018 season, which is the year before Rocco Baldelli took over as Twins manager, the Twins have stolen only 197 bases while no other American League team has fewer than 300. I'm reading that directly from Phil Miller's story. That is crazy, and they've ranked dead last in three of those seasons in stolen bases. And this year, they were lagging way behind, but they stole a bunch of bases against the Dodgers. Byron Buxton looking like more of a threat right now. He's he, he's more healthy than he has been in the past. Michael A. Taylor, a threat to steal bases, and Willie Castro, a threat to steal bases as well. So will they make that a more 
permanent part of their game this season or was this a little blip that they caught against the Dodgers where they thought they could take advantage of some things that remains to be seen but seeing them steal some bases have some energy on the base paths that is definitely a departure from recent seasons and in fact from the start of this year as well that'll do it for me today hope you enjoyed all the shows this week good stuff coming up next week as well Royce will be with me on Monday for sure I think Marnie Gellner should be joining me as well from Bally Sports North. That should be a great show next week as well. Until then, Michael Rand, enjoy your weekend. Back at it again on Monday.